Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. A staff report that is out that will be presented to council next Wednesday at the General Issues Committee meeting is requesting, suggesting, telling councillors, yep, don't. Don't. The arena's got to be downtown. Don't do it on the mountain. Don't do it at Lime Ridge Mall. Even though Michael Anlauer of the Bulldogs, the owner, wants to give $30 million of his own money and Cadillac Fairview wants to be involved in all the rest, don't do it. We need it downtown. You've, if you've been listening to this station today, you've heard lots of discussion about it. If you were listening last night, you heard callers on this one, which we'll get to in a moment. But the point of the report is that the downtown is the only place for an arena. And a lot of people are starting to say, wait a second, is the downtown the only place for a lot of things in this city? It seems that a lot of big projects that come up, they've got to be in the downtown. And that's what the callers were saying last night. Why is that? Why does everything, why does it seem that every big project has to go downtown? If you've got someone with a different idea, why are we squelching that right away? And it does make you wonder whether... This report that was commissioned by city council from staff, was this idea of a, an arena on the mountain ever going to get a, a real shake? Was it ever a possibility or was this a foregone conclusion? Esther Pauls is councillor of Ward 7 up on the mountain, not surprisingly. She joins us now. Esther, thanks for doing this today. Oh, thank you, Scott, for having me. Well, I appreciate you doing this. What, what do you think about that? Do you think that there was ever a chance ever a chance at all that this report was going to come back from city staff saying, you know what, uh, an arena at Lime Ridge Mall on the mountain is a terrific idea. Push ahead with that. Scott, I want to tell you the truth. Right from the beginning, when I put a motion in to let's just look at the proposal, I had many of the council, many of them, say, we're only doing it because you're asking us. Really, it should be downtown. And this is the truth. And I I honestly, and I said, but just give them a chance. But you know what really bothers me a a little bit is that we did a a study with Ernest uh, Young that the study showed that without a tennis, it will not succeed. So we, when I put my motion in, I did not want to spend another $250,000. If I had Ernest Young do a study on the mountain, I'll guarantee that probably it would say that would be a better place. But I wanted to save some money and said, so we'll do it staff-wise. And they came up with this. And the thing that bothers me mostly is that the study is not really complete. When they use words like, we believe there would be no saving. Do you believe it or don't you? They really, um, I, I, can't, I have a lot of questions when we go back on Wednesday, what's happening. So. Well, it, and, and I, as I say, the, the callers last night on the show, I have had a, a ton of calls at my office today and contact from other people. And Esther, the overriding, now not everyone in the city believes this, obviously, but the people who are contacting me, the overwhelming feeling is, why is it that if there is a big flashy project that is put in front of council, the sense is that it must always go downtown? Why is that? I, I have no idea. And I'll tell you, since I've been in council for one year, that's all we talk about is downtown. Now, I'm not against downtown. I want the people to know of Hamilton. I love downtown. It's a great place. But it's about time that the city looks at other areas of Hamilton, like the Hamilton Mountain, to see whether we could get some entertainment. We have, like, we have more people living on the mountain, and we have no entertainment at all. It would have been great 
if we had a hockey rink, more hotels. And you know what people are saying? Um, some of the council, well, there's not enough hotels. Well, it's not a, a, a suburb place. We could go, what, five kilometers and go downtown for hotels. And they're building more hotels. Why do we always have to talk about downtown, downtown? Now, honestly, I have people calling me too saying, emailing me, what is with the city? I mean, downtown is Hamilton? Isn't the city all of it? Isn't it Ancaster, the mountain, you know, all the other areas? And uh, I, I'm very disappointed at the, um, the study. I really am. I'm, I'm disappointed because it's not clear. It's not, they're wishy-washy. Well, yeah, it's, it's good to intensify the mountain, but we're going to do it downtown. And uh, I just don't buy it. I just want more explanation. Well, we'll see if any explanation is given. That's going to come up, as I say, at General Issues Committee next Wednesday. Uh, I'm not sure if that's in open forum or if that's in camera. I guess we'll find that out too. But Esther, you know, we've been talking about the idea of pushing the downtown. The council seems to be very concentrated on the downtown, downtown, downtown. But the city's strategic plan specifically points to the downtown and makes it a huge priority. So if that's the case, is there ever going to be something that's not pointing to the downtown and making that the number one place to look? Well, I don't think so. I really believe in October when Michael and Laura came, it was a waste of time. I, I, I felt like uh, he's standing there saying, listen, uh, there's a solution with this. I could take over the mountain. We could build it there. I will give you thirty million, and and they were just listening. But really, they had their mind closed. But if that's All true, that. if that's true, and if Michael Anlauer showing up at City Council for three hours to pitch his project, and that's just a waste of time in your mind. What does that say for any other businessman or developer or anyone else who has an idea that may not be downtown coming to City Hall? If he was wasting his time, why wouldn't the rest of them be? going on now for four years. I came in a year ago, and I heard it three years ago about the idea of a, um, an arena on the mountain and how exciting it was to think that this would happen. It might happen. And yet when I got in council, I think, like, it's not just council, it's the staff as well. You know, I really believe that we should have, I should have, I, I know it costs money, we should add an E, uh, uh, Y, do a, a study for the mountain, a complete study. And I did not want to spend the money, and that's why. Why did they do it just for downtown? Why did they do the Ernest Young just for downtown? And the main thing, Scott, we have to realize that Mr. Anlauer will leave. I know he will leave. He gave, what, 17 years here? And he's a, a gentleman, My, like I met him a couple of times, I met with him, with the mayor and with staff, and I want to tell you, all the three meetings I had with him this year, it's been, show us the proposal, we will look at it. And yet, they looked at it, and it seems like, oh, well, it's not good enough. It might help, it might not help. You might say, it's, I, I don't understand that. I think it's not very clear. So on Wednesday, start. I want it clear that the, the mountain was not accessible because it would cost too much. Now, with the LRT, like I'm thinking, Metrolink would, it would be great if Metrolink would help us with the, um, 
you know, a parking lot and getting people from the mountain going down. I think it's, it's, it's a great solution now that we, we don't have the LRT, but we're still getting the $1 billion. And you, but Esther, you raise one other point, and I think it's really interesting. And, and it's not just about the about this particular project, but it does seem that if you hire someone to do a study, an outside study, you often get a positive result from that. To sort of you, you, you say, hey, do this, and you come back with something you like. They will back that up. It does make me wonder if the if a report was paid for, an external report of a quarter million dollars to some company, I, I would be sure that you could get them to write a report for you that would make the case for the mountain, if that's what you wanted. Yes, and you know what? When I took the motion back in October, or, uh, yeah, it was in October, to have Michael and Laura come and speak to us just to look at it. I went to every councillor, honestly, and I'm fighting for the mountain. I, I really think the mountain needs a voice. Even the other councils are on the mountain. Uh, you know, Terry White is a wonderful council. He supported me and all that. And he thinks that uh, if we're going to do a 10,000 uh, seat downtown, it's not worth it. So he probably thinks the mountain's better. But I did not want to spend the money because they did their study. They spent the money just for downtown. And and I should have, if, you know, if I knew, I should have said, let's do another study, you know. And uh, it would have been uh, different then. But now this study is done, and we'll see what it is on Wednesday. I really want answers because, to me, it's not clear, Scott. It really isn't. Okay, so we only have a minute or so left here, but the the, the the flip side of this now is, okay, we've said no to Michael Andlauer, we've said no to $30 million of private money, we've said no to an actual plan that has been laid out, we've probably said no to a tenant because I believe and you believe that he's going to take the team elsewhere. So now the city is going to have to come up with a new plan of its own to find a way to get an arena, either get the Cops Coliseum, First Ontario Centre fixed up, or get a new arena built. And I don't see that. Play. Is that actually going to happen? Or if 10 years from now, are we still going to be talking about this? You know what, Scott? I believe that if Michael Antler leaves, we will not have a hockey team. First of oh, all, absolutely, that's true. But what about the rink? Will we get the rink done in the next decade? Why should we get a rink? Like, uh, I, I don't think, if Michael Antler leaves, they're not going to build a rink. Why do we build a rink, a hockey rink? Now, if Michael Angler for some reason decides, okay, build it for me, it's going to be at least five to seven more years, I believe. I, I don't see things moving very fast at the city. I really don't. I'm sorry. When Michael Angler four years ago kept asking, and now it's been four years, he wanted something built within two years. You know, and I don't think uh, Hamilton has the power, has the um, the vision to build something so quick downtown. So I don't really know. Michael Hanlover, if he leaves, we're going to be the losers. Hamilton is going to be the losers, not him. And I hope uh, I'm not um, cutting down at the, our council or our staff, but I just wish they would look at it more closely at it. Ward 7 Councillor Esther Paul, appreciate your honesty. Thanks for being on today. Thank you. Thank you. Have a great day. You Bye. too. That is, again, Ward 7 Councillor Esther Paul's. Look, that's, that's as blunt as a councillor is going to get about these kind of things. It just seems the sentiment is, and I've heard it all day from people all over the place, it just seems we are myopic that we have blinders on that says big, flashy, exciting projects, if they come to Hamilton, they've got to be downtown. 
And I'm not saying don't put them downtown at all. But I don't know that we should be eliminating the possibility that maybe sometimes we should consider them somewhere else if someone proposes them elsewhere. Just saying. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Amidst the knowing your enemy, all that story about the war breaking out maybe and planes possibly or probably being shot down and other chaos around the world, comes this much less important in the grand scheme of things story, but one boy. People are talking. This, this is one of those stories that just gets people, gets people going because it's not really, I don't think, all that important, but it falls into the gossipy gossip page kind of thing. And that would be the story of Prince Harry and Meghan Markle saying, that's it, we're out, done with the whole royal thing. We want to move to Canada. We want to become financially independent, live as non-royals, just the average... Former royals, you know, the average man on the street with 80 or $90 million in the bank, but just like the average Canadian, you know, we all have that. Question is, what, what is this? What does this mean? How does this happen? Is this even possible? Well, let me bring in someone who knows his way around this stuff for sure. Uh, Nathan Tidridge is a Waterdown District High School teacher. He is also the author of, I believe now, six books on the monarchy. Recipient of the Queen's Golden Jubilee Medal, Diamond Jubilee Medal. He is uh, he is the man to talk royalty. He's with us now. Uh, Nathan, thanks for doing this. Hey, Scott. No problem. Glad to be here. So uh, I'm trying to wrap my head around this. You've got this guy who is one of the, he's not first in line to the throne, but he's in there somewhere, six or seven or something, and his new wife, and they say they want to move to Canada and not be royals anymore. What, is this, what does this really mean in real terms? Yeah, uh, I think that's, that's the big question. Uh, no one's really ever done something like this before. Um, the, I mean, if, historically speaking, the, the last person to give up uh, kind of a, a royal duties like this would have been Edward VIII, and that was the abdication in uh, 1936. I mean, this isn't, uh, it, it's not really comparable. That's a different situation. But uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's unprecedented. So I think that's probably behind the scenes what a lot of people are trying to work out right now, especially in Buckingham Palace. It, this may be a stupid question, and I'm guessing that probably even you, with all your knowledge of this, have not had access to the Buckingham Palace vaults. Nonetheless, uh, is there a rule book? Is there a, something that they have in the royal family that outlines what happens if for all these circumstances? I'm not privy to anything like that, but my guess would be no. Um it, it, it's not really a job that you can, or a role that you can you can resign from, especially since no matter what, uh, Harry will always be the, uh, the grandson of the queen or the brother of the future queen or son of a, or, sorry, the brother of the future king or the uh, son of the future king. So yeah, trying to negotiate what that means, especially with what they're hoping to accomplish. I, I have no idea how they're going to accomplish that. R- remind me again, and, and people will remember, and they're probably screaming at the radio right now, but I can't remember. Remind me when Edward VIII abdicated, uh, right. what did he become? Did he be? Did he still have a title, or was he absolutely just plain old Joe Citizen Edward? Uh, they gave him a title. It was uh, the Duke of Windsor, and uh, he uh, lived in uh, exile, uh, self-imposed exile in uh, France. Um, it gets a little bit more complicated because uh, during the Second World War, he had some uh, rather dubious connections. But uh, he was uh, basically persona non grata. Um, he did want a role, 
but uh, it was really hard to give him a role. Uh, he just, for the rest of his life, just kind of lived an empty existence, to be honest. So, okay, so let's say that, that Prince Harry, they work through this, and what, he just becomes now Harry the celebrity as opposed to Harry the Prince? I mean, I, I don't know if that's possible, but is that, I mean, I think that's what he's trying to be. Uh, from from I read through their their website, and from what I've read, they want to keep the title. I think uh, the Duke and Duchess of, of Sussex and their Royal Highness, and they want to stay in some kind of connection with the uh, with the crown, uh, and that's where it gets really really murky. Because if you're if they're wanting to go into the say the private sector, um, or they want to um, uh, monetize uh, their position. That gets really tricky because uh, uh, the royal family, it, it exists to serve. It doesn't exist to generate, to create profit. To, en- to enrich. Yeah. yeah, to and, enrich. It, it, and it does seem a little rich, this proposal, as, as we've heard so far, because it seems like you're trying to play both sides of the same coin. I want the benefits that come with royalty, but not the duties. I want to be able to have the title and live the life, but I don't really want to have to do the stuff. Right, and, and, and that's why... Maybe this announcement, it, it looks like it was, it was premature. It, it kind of came out of nowhere, and it, it shocked a lot of people. Because I'm sure behind the scenes, this could have been some kind of arrangement could probably uh, have been made. Um, because I understand the, the, the want for privacy. I mean, I think everybody understands that, that the press can be quite vicious, especially in the U.K. And, uh, I mean, who wouldn't want to live in Canada, you know? Uh, but uh, at the same time, they have to. There's a, there's a lot of moving parts that they would have to consider, and it sounds like they began that process, but maybe jumped the gun a little bit. Yeah, I, I don't. Uh, I don't anticipate Harry uh, being seen working at a Walmart anytime soon, or something else. No. I mean, I like he. Regardless of how they try to do this, if he does try to go private sector, I'm assuming that any money when they say financially independent, any money they're going to make is going to be directly off their fame, so you really can't untangle yourself from the royal family. I mean, it's, it's impossible to do, thoroughly. Yes, and, and they're suppo- especially since he's, he's so close to the, to the monarch, anything that strays into political actions, too, becomes, becomes problematic, and so he'd have to be very careful of that. And if he's living in Canada, any events that he does here, is he doing that on behalf of uh, the Queen in Canada or uh, of the UK or uh, all kinds of, of things would have to be decided upon? If, if they do move to Canada full time, this becomes the next question. We still have the Queen on our coins. They still matter. If they're here, presumably we are still supposed to be doing our part to look after them, I guess. What would be Canada's obligations, if they, Canada's obligations, if they were living here? See, and that's, that's a big question there. Um, so certainly things like security. Exactly. Uh, because they are persons, uh, persons of note, regardless if they're members of the royal family or celebrities or whatnot. They, yeah, there's security and there would need to be... Um, would need to be addressed, and then would they be called upon to per, to perform functions over here? Now we already have a governor general and lieutenant governor, so that would have to be um, that's something that would have to be looked at. So um, it's more than just kind of a, a royal tour, where a member of the royal family comes over here for some time and performs functions on behalf of the government or different charities and that sort of thing. And there's mechanisms to pay for that, but this would be a whole new a whole new ballpark and would have to be uh, 
would have to be laid out quite clearly. But if they are choosing to not abdicate, that's not the right word, but step away from this and not be royals really, sort of just be special citizens, uh, my question is, well, then why would, if they need security, and I assume they do, why would that not fall on them? If you're going to go make your living as be financially independent, be financially independent enough to hire your own security detail, because I don't think the taxpayers want to pay for that. Right, and I think that's that's the um, the blowback that's happening right now that we're seeing in the media, because you, you can't really have it both ways. And uh, so it's hard to understand exactly what they want. Uh, which is why I think their announcement was a little premature. Um, you're kind of you're in the pool or you're out in this in this type of a life, um, and it shows really kind of the uniqueness of the position. It it, it is a life of service, and I, I know Harry didn't get a choice in that, but you know Meghan Markle did, and um, it, it, it's it's a unique life. It, it's a it's a special role. And it's one that is really hard, I think, to transition into the private sector like that. When you say you're in the pool or out, and it's a great line, Edward VIII, when he abdicated, uh, my understanding, and and you you certainly know better, that was not a popular position, certainly, for him to take. And he was not a guy who was beloved by his people after that. But when you look at this now in retrospect, and you realize how complicated a, a thing this is, just as we're looking at Harry and figuring out how to untangle himself or not, does it give you some measure of respect for Edward that he, what, boy, when he was out, he was out and uh, to best of my knowledge, he never begged his way back in or something. He was just gone. My understanding, I, I he did want back in. He, oh, he, he did. Okay. He, he did want in, um, but he, uh, and he didn't really, he, he was out of the pool for sure. And uh, there were not, there were no invitations to, um, to bring him back in. And that's largely to do with uh, decisions that he made um, before and after the, or before and during the Second World War. Um, but uh, yeah, it, 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 and that's why it, it, it's uh, not a great comparison because we have here, the, the, he, I, I Googled it during break, he's sixth in line to the throne. Okay. Um, he, he wants to remain in the royal family, but he doesn't want to be a senior member. So he doesn't want to be as active as he is. And, uh, and then wants to be financially independent. And that's just, that's carving out a whole new area because Edward VIII was never financially independent. Um, he lived on an, an allowance, on a stipend that was, uh, that was provided to him in exchange for him just kind of keeping his head down. Let's go through those six for a second because we've got Prince Charles who's next up and then Prince William yep. would be after that. And if something were to happen to those two, uh, then it's Prince William's son, Prince George, and then Prince yep. George's little sister, Prince Charlotte, and then Prince Charlotte's little brother, Prince Louis. Yeah. And then it would be Prince Harry. So it's yep. entirely unlikely that something were to happen to all those people. But exactly. let's just play a horrible, and it's a horrible hypothetical, but let's say okay. something did happen. When you have taken the steps to say, I'm, I'm out of the picture here, if something happened and Prince Harry had to be called upon, could he then step back into the picture and say, yeah, okay, I'll take over? Uh, absolutely. Uh, unless he formally would abdicate. Um, well, I, I mean, technically he could, but could he, but yeah, with he the, would... could he with the British people and with other people who follow the monarchy, if you've basically snubbed your nose at it, could you then turn around and say, okay, I'm back? You, I mean, legally, yes. When you're talking about um, how people would receive that, 
that would be entirely yeah dependent on the situation and and probably how the the next couple of weeks and months and how things how the cards fall on the table just before i let you go is megan markle i remember years ago back in 89 when wayne gretzky got traded from the oilers <laughs> janet jones took all the flack for making him move down to los angeles is megan markle the one who's being blamed for this I'm not following it uh, close enough. I, I, according to social media, uh, it seems, yeah, I think she is getting blamed for it. I don't know if that's entirely fair. I mean, it's, it's, they're a couple. It's a decision that they both made. And he would be very well aware of the ramifications of his decision. At the same time, yep, they're, they're a young family. And, um, and I know that he's, he's gone through a lot of trauma in his life. So, I, I hope that the, I hope the best for them, I, um, and I also hope the best for uh, for the family, and particularly the Queen, because this uh, cannot be an easy thing to be going through, and one can only imagine privately how uh, how people are, are dealing with it. Especially when it sounds like they dropped this one on her a little bit by surprise. That's, that's a nice little surprise for uh, for the Queen one one morning. Uh, Nathan Tidridge, yeah. always appreciate having you on. Thanks for taking the time tonight. No problem, Scott. Good to talk to you. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. The last few nights, last week or so, when I have gone home after the show, my wife and I have sat down to watch an episode of something called The Confession Killer on Netflix. It's a fascinating show about Henry Lee Lucas, who confessed to 100 and then 200 and then 300 and then 600 murders in Texas and around the U.S. in the 60s and 70s and 80s. I'm not going to give anything away. You may want to watch it. It's a fascinating series. And this follows my viewing of a show on Netflix also called The Devil Next Door, which was about John Demjanjuk, who was accused of being Ivan the Terrible during, I think, in Treblinka in World War II, a Nazi death camp guard. And this, of course, followed my viewing of The Staircase, also on Netflix, which was a true crime documentary thriller And all of these are wildly popular, as you well know, same with Making a Murderer and all the others. Uh, And there are other streaming services that have shows like this, and it's not just streaming services. Go on cable TV, watch 2020 or Dateline or any of these. Every single night of the week, you can find true crime documentaries on TV and then not true crime. I mean, how many cop shows are there? How many, or shows that are based on, that have some basis in real life though? People gobble this stuff up. Just this week, 60 Minutes did a fascinating piece on whether Jeffrey Epstein killed himself. Very interesting. But I've started thinking lately, should I be entertained? Should I be enjoying? Should I be finding interest in all this stuff in stories that are inspired by the real life suffering of people? We forget that there are real live, or there were, but real people who are involved in these stories. Is it okay to find these things interesting and entertaining, or is that creepy and ghoulish of us? Well, let me bring in someone here who, I don't know anyone who knows more about the world of pop culture and these kind of things. Robert Thompson is the director of the Blyer Center for Television and Popular Culture at Syracuse University. We love having him on the show. Robert, thanks for doing this today. Always a pleasure. Thank you. What is behind our fascination with these true crime stories? Well, I I guess my first answer would be uh, I'm not so much fascinated by the fact that we are interested in these things. I would be surprised if we weren't interested in these stories. I mean, uh, every one of them, uh, and if they get made into a podcast or a Netflix series or a Dateline or a 60 Minutes 
uh, episode, they already have got elements in them that are inherently uh, interesting. And uh, let's face it, it's fascinating to see uh, the depths to which our fellow human beings are capable of, uh, uh, of going. These glimpses into the heart of darkness uh, are are fascinating to to follow and they've got elements of mystery and they've got elements of horror and all of this uh, i don't think being interested in in these things in any way indicts one uh, uh and i don't think there's any way in which we should categorically say to watch these is some sign of a uh, uh, uh mental problems Whew. on the other hand i wouldn't <laughs> categorically say it's perfectly fine as well i suppose some people could be uh watching these things with a very different kind of pleasure but but I don't think um, I don't think the fact that you like these are necessarily a problem. Well, you mentioned that these are a sort of a journey into the heart of darkness at times. I don't see nearly as many shows that would be considered a journey into the heart of light, which is the flip side of this. And it's like we, we don't seem to have. I mean, I suppose we have sitcoms and other fun things that are not. I don't know if it's an exact opposite 180 degree difference, but it, I don't know. Um, okay. Where does the line then come that it, that this entertainment, cause that's what it is. Where does the line come that this becomes exploitive? Okay, well, first of all, I mean, the heart of lightness business. I'm 60 years old. I grew up with thousands of hours of Mr. Ed, the talking horse, the flying nun, a flying nun, uh, my mother, the car, uh, <laughs> I dream of genie, bewitched, all of these uh, things, all of which had little problems, and they were usually very, very tiny little problems, and even those would be resolved by the, uh, by the end. So I think there were plenty, uh, a lot of the history of the mass media uh, are filled with these kinds of uh, light and airy uh, kinds of subjects. Now that has changed not only in these kinds of programming we're talking about, but it's changed in, in fiction as well. Uh, when I was growing up, the bad guys always got their comeuppance at the end of every single episode. It almost invariably happened. Um, uh, there were no such things as anti-heroes. Now, you look at any of the programs uh, on TV, streaming or cable or anything else, and the anti-hero is the rule of thumb. The greatest shows that have played over the past 20 years, The Wire, Breaking Bad, Mad Men, all about really bad, bad people. Um, so I think some of this has been a, uh, a shift because it's compensating for uh, how little of this we had uh, in the beginning. And then I'm sorry, with that rambling answer, I forgot the second part of your question. Well, no, I was just saying, where does it become exploitive? That, uh, and, and let me just jump in for a sec, because all those shows you talked about, great examples. There's a show that's on Netflix right now that just came out, the second series of a show called You which is about a guy who is, I'm not giving anything away here, kind of stalks girlfriends and he's a bad, bad dude. And yet people who are watching this, you're, you find yourself cheering that he's not going to get caught. And again, I'm going, wait a second. Exactly. Dexter yes. is about yep. a serial killer who was a good guy. <laughs> I mean, he was, he was the hero of the uh, show, as in many ways was Tony Soprano and Walter White and yep. all the uh, yep. uh, rest of them. It, it would have been hard to imagine that back in the you know days when we were watching I Love Lucy. Uh, I suppose it became less hard to imagine when J.R. Ewing came on board in the early 1980s. Uh, and by the time we got to um, uh, the turn of the century, it is now, we'd now be hard-pressed to find the old-fashioned good guy. Yeah, now Andy Griffith would be the guy we're rooting against. 
well, yeah, or, or we would never believe it. I mean, it's, it's really interesting you bring him up because he was kind of typical of and one of the most popular characters of the entire decade of the 60s. You would have a hard time putting a character, pr- uh, proposing a TV show with a character like that uh, uh, um, in it because no network executive would ever buy it because they'd consider it something that no one would ever watch. I had on my show uh, some months ago Kim Goldman, whose brother Ron was killed in the O.J. Simpson killing. Oh, sure. And fascinating thing, she's got a, a podcast now, and it, re- it really sort of created the conundrum here because she explaining at great depth and great emotional depth about how this whole thing and all the entertainment that spawned off of this was so destructive and so traumatic in her life. And you say, man, it's it's we've got to remember that there are real people behind these stories. And then... She's also got a podcast that is only there because her brother died. And you say, well, th- that, is a, that is a huge conundrum to have to say both of those sides of the story. Right. Now I remember. That was your cool question is when does it become exploitative? Well, I mean, I guess it's, there are, the conundrum comes from there. Two, there's two ways in which this operates. One is us being interested in things because they are part of the historical record. Um, and there are people who are very, very interested in the Second World War. The History Channel, for a whole, uh, uh, for years, uh, back many years ago, uh, was like the World War II channel, and it did an awful lot of documentaries about uh, uh, the Nazis. Um, now, that, of course, is to be interested in that, I think, is very different than, you know, uh, putting a seal of approval. To cheer for them. Uh, yeah, it's many, different many from cheering. historians of the Second World War and of the Third Reich uh, and of all of, uh, all of those things that I wouldn't accuse of, um, uh, you know, exploiting the victims or exploiting that uh, uh, history. Though then when we get to recent kinds of things like uh, the Goldmans and, and so forth, all of that stuff constantly being a part of the media environment is disturbing to the individuals that were part of it, though you very uh, correctly point out that sometimes those very individuals um, also kind of uh, uh, piggyback onto those events for what they themselves are doing. The line is difficult here, and I'm not sure if you're familiar with these names, but we had a number of years ago, there was a, a husband and wife murder sex killing team up here called Paul and Carla Bernardo. And they are, you mentioned their names and they are still reviled in this part of the world. And there have been attempts at making movies and other things about them. And for that though, most of the, most of the response has been blowback and anger at people for creating entertainment or creating movies about them. Where is that line then that you can say, okay, we're okay with watching and being sort of entertained and intrigued by this, but is it just when it hits close enough to home that we become uncomfortable or what is the line? Well, I mean, I guess that certainly there is no place we can consult that will tell us this is the line. This is, uh, I mean, these are subjective kinds of, uh, uh, kinds of decisions. And I think also whether the line is, uh, whatever that line is, whether it gets crossed or not, depends upon the execution, upon the nature of the, uh, uh, the program as well. Uh, the uh, Jean Benet Ramsey uh, mm. case, I think, was another big one here, where uh, that was so fascinating. 
fascinating because it had so many elements that we could not uh, look away from. Yet the argument, it was that virtually any time you did a movie on that, it was going to be prurient and exploitative and all the, uh, all the rest of it. Um, yet then I look at not one, but two uh, uh, things that were done on the O.J. Simpson case, both relatively recently. The installment of American Crime Story, which was that multi-part episode, um, or multi-part uh, series on uh, O.J. fictionalized or dramatized, and then the extraordinary 10-hour ESPN 30 for 30 thing, which is one of, I think, the finest pieces of television of any kind ever made. That was an extraordinary uh, series. I would in no way call that exploitative, but in many ways going to the well of the OJ trial again has a lot of those elements you could accuse it for. I do want, and the OJ, the OJ thing, it always comes back to OJ eventually. Anytime you discuss any kind of true crime, it's always going to come back to there at some point. I do wonder, there was a time, I'm just wondering if Netflix and these documentaries now have taken the place of a lot of what we were watching 20 years ago, which was cable news every night, Larry King, Nancy Grace, when these stories would just go on and on and on and on forever. I can't remember her name, the the, the woman in... in um, Italy, who was accused of killing her lover, the American woman, and um, you know all these ones. I, I, maybe I'm just not watching nighttime cable TV anymore. But it seemed that that was the thing. You would tune in, and those shows. This it now seems that it's the, it's just moved right to streaming, and you pick it up whenever you want to. It's not changed. It's just a different format. Right. Well, and that, sure, that's been true. Uh, there are different ways to distribute information now. Though I think, to a great extent, cable is still playing the role when the news cycle becomes the promotional season for what will become the podcast or the made-for-TV movie or the movie or the streaming series uh, or uh, whatever. What is now changing is that um, a lot of these true crime stories once we had once making uh, a, a murder became such a spectacular hit i mean that was a big big deal everybody started searching for yet another subject for one of these multi-part true crime uh, uh, stories so that now a lot of the stories we hear uh it's in streaming on netflix and podcasts and so forth are bringing up cases that we never heard of before, that were never covered by cable news. Uh, and I guess that's part of their fascination as well. The, the one thing about a Jean Benet or a, a, a O.J. or any of these stories is you never have to worry about spoiler alerts because you always know how they end. One last thing before I let you go, and you, you mentioned Making a Murderer. Uh, in podcast form, probably the one that for a lot of people really got them interested in the true crime thing was Serial. And in both of those cases, and again, I hope I'm not giving anything away, there was questions. Staircase is another one that's on Netflix. It's, cr- oh, yeah. it's cases where we are, there are questions raised about whether the person who is charged with the crime or convicted of the crime did the crime. And as you say, when you go look for those, do we run the risk as we get, we know now what the formula is of creating doubt in a lot of cases that there shouldn't probably be a lot of doubt that, but it becomes entertainment and we need to have that dramatic conflict to make this thing work. 
Well, I think each individual uh, production uh, sometimes goes, I mean, we'd have to judge each one, but I think sometimes there very much is a sense that you're always wanting to tell the story in a way that maximizes its uh, drama. And if you are doing, if you're maximizing it at the expense of telling the truth, whatever that means, then that's a, uh, that's a bad thing. And you're right. These things have become somewhat formulized that even if you're not trying to do that, uh, in many ways the formula might be determining how the story, um, how the story gets told. I, I think we'd have to judge that, though, on a case-by-case basis. And I think the bottom line is that being fascinated with these, I think, is, is an expression of human curiosity and that it in and of itself is not anything we should be concerned about. It's a fascinating topic, and I sincerely appreciate your input. Robert Thompson, the director of the Blyer Center for Television and Popular Culture. Always love having you. Thanks for doing this. It was my pleasure. Thank you. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.